Good morning. It's Friday, the 26th of January, and this is Govind Rajethi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. And it's a happy 75th Republic Day to you, being the day India declared itself a sovereign, democratic, and republic day with the adoption of the constitution. And it's also a financial markets holiday. Our top stories and themes for the day. Indian markets closed marginally up in a truncated week amidst an uncertain outlook. Oil prices rise to the highest level in eight weeks. Could it go further? How India could get capital from global fund pools beyond emerging markets? India is restricting capital from flowing out but wants its citizens to go into war-torn zones. Some lessons. Tesla shares slide, alarm bells start ringing after Elon Musk says Chinese electric vehicle majors can demolish companies like his. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Truncated market week amidst an uncertain outlook. It was a truncated week with just three days of trading as opposed to the usual five. One holiday was calendared being Republic Day today. The other was not and was abruptly announced late last week. Something one should not make a habit of in a globally linked marketplace. The markets were weak and somewhat directionless, under pressure from selling from both foreign institutional investors and domestic investors to some extent via mutual funds, with reports suggesting large redemptions in mutual funds being in turn driven by recent new highs and maybe some wariness on whether the big run would continue. Mutual fund investors pulled out some 17,000 crores from systematic investment plan accounts in December 23, the highest since April 21 and then invested about 6,500 crores. So it's a net positive. December, which of course seems like a long time ago, had seen the Sensex and Nifty rising close to 8%. There is no clear indication at this point whether we will see those levels of redemptions in January, but that is something that's hanging over the market. Back to yesterday, the benchmark BAC Sensex fell 360 points to end at 70,701. The Nifty 50 settled down 101 points around 21,353. The markets were lower during the day but swung back in the second half of trade. And finally, the US economy's fourth quarter growth beat forecasts, growing 3.3% annualized against predictions of 2%, according to a government's preliminary estimate out on Thursday morning, US time. For all of 2023, the US economy expanded 2.5% thanks to rising personal spending, including during the holidays, business investment and housing. Meanwhile, the European Central Bank also kept interest rates on hold for a third straight meeting, sticking to its now-stated position that cuts may still be some way off. Oil prices hit eight-week highs. In the battle between supply and supply and between those who want to hold prices like the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries or OPEC countries and those who want to earn more money by just supplying oil at almost any cost, being the non-OPEC countries, the former one for now. Oil rose to the highest level in eight weeks after US inventories fell far more than expected, with crude inventories falling by more than 9 million barrels last week to hit the lowest level since October, according to Bloomberg. Brent crude is now closer to $81 a barrel. Remember, there is a war going on in the Middle East and oil tankers are being fired upon in the Red Sea. Given all of that, oil prices are still doing fine, but precariously poised. There is the China factor now, with the government there hinting at more support for the economy and, for that matter, stock markets, which we talked about yesterday, all of which which would boost consumption and thus oil prices. Citigroup warned that Brent could pop 
to $90 a barrel if the tensions in the Middle East spiral, though it did caution that that's not its base case outlook, according to Bloomberg. At $80 a barrel, India is still doing okay, but every additional $1 of oil prices going up adds over a billion dollars to the oil bill. And if the rupee gets weaker, then there is a bigger problem. India imports roughly 85% of the crude it consumes. Speaking of the rupee, it's back in the 83 to 83 rupees 50 paise range and currently around 83 rupees 12 paise, being the range we are seeing for some time now, which would suggest by inference that this is the level the Central Bank or the Reserve Bank of India is comfortable with. The energy segment today was supported by India Energy Week, which will take place on the 6th of February. Log on to www.indiaenergyweek.com for more details. India could benefit from larger capital and fund pools. It is a fact that in Davos, India does not have to sell the larger opportunity anymore, rather the specific opportunities and the mechanics of them, and perhaps where in the country. The other thing that is emerging is that India could be fitting into global capital portfolios as opposed to just emerging market portfolios, which is the traditional benchmark. While all of this may not happen overnight, we are seeing fresh and new flows in debt markets too, apart from equities, though equities are linked more to valuation levels and how expensive the market is perceived at at that point of time. I put this question on how flows were looking overall to Mahesh Nandurkar, Managing Director and Head of Research at stockbroking firm Jefferies in a panel on Equity Outlook for 2024 organized by Baroda BNP Paribas Mutual Fund in Mumbai the day before. Uh, you know, at Jefferies, uh, start the year, uh, you know, 2024 uh, on an optimistic note. We clearly mindful of the fact that the last couple of years have been very strong for the Indian equity markets in general, and we are sitting uh, as uh, you know, Nilkant, uh, you know, the previous uh, sort of speakers spoke about in terms of the valuation. Uh, but we continue to believe that the current market multiples uh, that we are seeing right now, though elevated, uh, you know, there is a reason why it could sustain. Uh, over a period of time and we believe that the equity markets uh, would broadly deliver returns uh, in line with uh, the EPS growth, the earnings growth, which we believe uh, is going to be in the range of uh, 12 to 13 uh, percent. So clearly not as ecstatic a return as we have seen over the last couple of years, but definitely still in the positive territory. Now clearly the underlying assumption here is that the global uh, liquidity environment the domestic factors uh, continue to be supportive. Uh, I don't really see any big reason why it should change. Uh, our uh, basic thesis here is that uh, as the U.S. Fed begins to uh, start the uh, uh, starts the rate cut cycle, and the current market expectations are somewhere between 125, 150 basis point of rate cut this year, and maybe more going forward. Uh, we believe that the US dollar, which has been an extremely strong currency over the last two years, uh, will uh, begin to weaken. And that actually is an ideal environment for emerging markets to receive flows. Uh, so emerging market as an asset class should be doing much better uh, in that environment. And India uh, will receive its own share of flows, maybe a little bit higher than fair share because uh, of the recent global uh, Sort of geopolitical changes that we've been seeing, uh, and uh, you know what we are seeing, which is uh, the lack of investor interest in some of the other larger markets like China. Uh, so that clearly is one of the key factors to keep in mind. 
Secondly, uh, we continue to believe that the domestic uh, flows environment uh, should also, uh, you know, remain, uh, you know, optimistic. Um, uh, and clearly, the reason is that our analysis shows that uh, at this point in time, uh, only uh, like less than five percent of the total household assets are in equities, uh, whereas that number has been uh, much higher in many other emerging markets, uh, in the range of eight to ten percent. The developed market. Uh, you know, that number is much higher in like 20-25% or more than that. So we believe that the current level of equity flows that we're seeing from the domestic investors, uh, while appears to be strong, uh, can definitely sustain because at an overall level, as a percentage of total savings or a percentage of household balance sheet size, it's still a small number. Uh, so with that, uh, you know, as the backdrop, we believe that um, the economic growth is continue, uh, you know, will be driven more by the investment cycle going forward. Over the last 10 years, we've seen a big down cycle on the investment activities, but we are seeing uh, the re-emergence of the housing market. Uh, I'm a firm believer that the private capex should also uh, start to show signs of picking up. And that's the reason why we believe that the overall economic growth and the corporate earnings growth uh, should uh, hold quite steady. Obviously, this is very different environment from what we've seen over the last 10 years, which was the period of, uh, I would say, big risk aversion in the, uh, in, the, in the domestic economy. And therefore, the stocks and the sectors that performed well over the last 10 years uh, were very different from what it will be over the next 10 years because uh, the risk appetite in the economy has changed. And maybe we'll touch upon all those things uh, as we go forward. Uh, but yeah, but I, I kind of, you know, definitely uh, uh, sort of, you know, want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, end my preliminary thoughts, uh, you know, on this outlook that, uh, yeah, we are looking at uh, constructive returns from equity markets uh, going forward. And and you've just come back from Davos. Uh, so what, what happened there? Yeah, it's been a sort of quite a topical discussion. Uh, so Davos, as you all know, uh, you know, uh, all the global leaders, uh, you know, come in. Uh, you know, at a point in time. Uh, although I personally believe that uh, Davos is actually uh, you know just a small village, uh, if you'll ask me. It really kind of bursts at the seam because we don't really have enough number of, sort of hotels, not enough infrastructure in my view. But anyway, I'll not touch upon all those things. But what I'll definitely say is that the two of the very sort of common topics that were discussed there, one is the green uh, energy transition uh, and secondly, AI. That was, uh, I mean, those two topics were on everybody's mind. Uh, but I would also like to add that India itself had a pretty strong and significant presence, uh, you know, at Davos. We had, uh, you know, three or four uh, lounges of the government of India. There were several state governments uh, showcasing uh, the opportunities in those respective states for investment opportunities. We had several Indian companies, mostly the IT companies, showcasing, uh, you know, as well. So we could clearly see that uh, Indian contingent was very strong. A lot of uh, global speakers talking about India. Uh, you know, in a very positive way. Uh, in fact, my personal interactions, uh, you know, with the CEOs of large uh, global asset managers uh, makes me believe that uh, while India has not been on the radar screen of a lot of global mandates or global uh, funds, so to speak, uh, but I think increasingly it is uh, looking up on the radar screen of many uh, global mandates. I'm not talking about Asian mandates or EM mandates. They do invest in India because they are in a way forced to as well. Uh, but global mandates don't have any such uh, compulsion to invest. But uh, my interactions uh, suggest that uh, India is now showing up on the radar screens of many such global investors as well. So yes, I would definitely say that I'm coming back with a 
uh, you know a more optimistic view so, from there uh, as Gautam, well. I'll just come to you, but is that a, is that a is that a shift in uh, in, in uh, let's say the, the global uh, pools looking at India versus let's say dedicated pools? I mean, or, or is this been happening gradually? Yeah. So uh, you know, as uh, Vilkant also mentioned. Uh, at this point in time, the large part, uh, you know, of foreign money that's there in India is, you know, mostly, uh, you know, through the India dedicated funds or India allocation coming from Asian funds and emerging market funds and uh, also the sovereign wealth funds and uh, uh, some of the, uh, you know, government-backed funds as well. Uh, we have not really seen too many uh, of the global mandates because uh, for a global fund, the uh, I mean, most of the investors follow MSCI Global uh, as the, or actually as the benchmark, where Indian neutral weight is just about 1.5, 1.6%. So uh, it's a very small market which they can very easily ignore. Uh, but what I'll say is that it's a market uh, now at an absolute basis is now almost like 4.4, 4.5 trillion dollars. Uh, we are now the fourth largest uh, stock market globally by market cap. Uh, we are going to be the third largest economy uh, in, in GDP terms in a few years time. So it is, it is clearly showing up, uh, I would say, on the radar screen of a lot of investors. Okay. Will India cut gold import tariffs from equities to gold? The Ministry of Commerce has backed a long-standing demand for the jewellery industry to reduce import tariffs on gold bars. Government and industry officials told Reuters amidst concerns that duties were further harming the country's faltering jewellery exports. There is some expectation that an announcement will come in the interim budget due on February 1st or next week. This is an interim budget because the final budget or the actual budget will come after elections which will take place in April. The government earlier this week raised import duties on gold and silver findings which are hooks, clasps and other fittings used in the making of jewellery to 15% from 11% to keep importers from bringing in gold classified as findings to save on taxes or imports. Lower costs would obviously help the viability of India's large gold and diamond jewellery processing industry and help export, a trade ministry official told Reuters. In July 2022, India had raised import duties on gold to 15%, a move which has obviously triggered increased smuggling, as subsequent data has shown as well. Industry officials told Reuters that jewellery exports were dragged down by the resulting higher costs. India's jewellery industry employs over 4.3 million people and accounts for about 10% of India's goods exports. It saw a 16% fall in exports for April to December 2023. That's almost all of last year compared with the same period a year earlier according to Commerce Ministry estimates. Still, gold imports rose by more than 25% to about $36 billion in the same period reflecting strong local demand according to government data. So the larger question is a little philosophical and we will address this in more ways than one today. Should one have lower import duties and reduce incentives for smuggling and the like or keep them high on the belief that we will earn more from duties and prevent outflow of foreign currency? Now, recent history suggests that raising duties, tariffs and barriers generally does not and has not worked for India, whether in gold or elsewhere. From gold to entertainment, the Sony vs Z drama claims collateral damage. Z Entertainment has reportedly conveyed to Walt Disney it does not intend to move forward with a deal to pay around $1.4 billion for cricket TV rights it acquired from the US firm, according to Reuters. The deal is off. Z said that they are not in a position to pay, one of the sources told Reuters, adding Z completely reneged on the rights. Z was to pay for the rights over time, but it missed the first $200 million payment to Disney in recent weeks. 
In August, Z had told stock exchanges it had signed a strategic license agreement with Disney to take over certain International Cricket Council TV broadcast rights for four years starting 2024 from the United States firm, which continued to retain streaming rights. Two days ago, Sony called off a potential $10 billion merger with Z and also sent them a $90 bill for termination costs. Of people and capital flows. This is a theme story. In a globalized world, capital and goods move freely, but people usually move in directions they're allowed to, by their home countries outward and by recipient countries inward. India has been steadily tightening controls on capital flows outward, whether by raising tariffs on items like gold or imposing taxes, all by reimbursable, on several categories of overseas spends, including credit cards, if you cross 7 lakh rupees per year. The Prime Minister has also repeatedly asked why Indians are marrying overseas when there are so many options and destinations in India. Presumably, he was highlighting the cultural and spiritual aspect of marrying within the country, but he was also pointing, quite obviously, to the fairly ostentatious weddings in several international destinations and obviously not the backpacker types. I'm now hearing, by the way, from folks in the travel trade that several such weddings have been or being moved to India or back to India because a comment from the Prime Minister usually means that tax officials for example, could take the cue and start watching more closely. Be that as it may, the process and the cumbersomeness of, let's say, paying additional and presumptive taxes on already taxed income that you spend overseas only because it is overseas is meant to act as a deterrent and early data is suggesting that it's already working. In many ways, this is a swing back to the 1970s, even if the absolute tariffs protection and barrier levels are not the same or much lower. Now, here is what is happening in China. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that Chinese individual investors are desperate to shift their money out of the country and are, for example, buying funds that offer exposure to Japanese stocks at a 20% premium to what those stocks are worth. Reuters, meanwhile, is reporting that while crypto trading and mining has been banned in China since 2021, the Chinese are piling onto them, including using bank cards issued by small rural commercial banks to buy cryptocurrencies through grey market dealers and capped each transaction at about $6,900 to escape scrutiny. More and more, Chinese investors are apparently using creative ways to own Bitcoin and other crypto assets because they believe those are safer than investing in crumbling stock and property markets at home. Now, let me highlight here that India is quite different in this regard. Neither property nor stock markets are crumbling and actually are in pretty good health. But the larger point is that when you have too many restrictions, capital tends to find a way out. Now, Chinese citizens are also using their $50,000 annual forex purchase quotas to move money into cryptocurrency accounts in the territory. Under Chinese rules, the money can be used only for purposes such as overseas travel or education. Very similar to India, except that India's limit is $250,000, which was not so tightly monitored earlier, but now is. So the general rule, as explained to me by legendary investor Jim Rogers and author of best-selling travel finance books like Investment Biker and Adventure Capitalist, the writing of which brought him to Mumbai as well, is that when you tighten capital controls, parallel markets take off and flourish, including grey markets. The grey market for US dollars, for example, had pretty much disappeared in India because we opened it up some years ago. Now, we are tightening outflows and the grey market premiums for US dollars are rising, even though very, very marginally. Maybe we will loosen up again soon, given that many other macroeconomic factors are in our favour. At this point, one can only hope. Now, while we are holding back capital, we want our people to go. In a development that can perhaps be best called bizarre, 
state governments in India are advertising jobs and positions, but overseas and acting as, well, employment agents. The big job advertisement, if you want to call it that, is right now in Israel, where there is a fairly desperate need for agriculture workers. Israel is looking to hire as many as 42,000 Indians to make up for a worker shortage worsened by its war on Gaza, or into Bloomberg. Those hired will work mostly in construction at a salary of about 137,000 rupees a month or about $1,650 plus benefits, according to news reports quoted by Bloomberg. Now, thousands of people are obviously lining up and in freezing cold, by the way, for these jobs fraught with risk. Though the risk factor in itself is not new because desperate job-seeking Indians travel to the most dangerous parts of the world and have done so for years. Now, you could, of course, argue that remittances from Indians overseas are at an all-time high, around $125 billion, and workers who go out of India are obviously also contributing to India's economy because they're sending money back, which they are, and they always have. But working in war zones is not quite the same. In almost the same situation, we would have been airlifting our workers out. And guess what? We did exactly that a few months ago. And if you thought everyone was a blue-collar worker, you're wrong. I once met a telecom industry veteran who had earlier worked with a state-owned telecom company that's in India and had just returned after working with various warlords in Somalia. He told me that it was frightening for sure, but he took solace from the fact that all warlords apparently converged on the need for good telecom networks even as they battled each other. The thing was, he just did not look like someone who would land in a war zone for a job, albeit a well-paying one. Now, this was some years ago. But I don't think the underlying sentiment has changed because aspirations are always higher than perhaps what people can access. And nor has the job market improved so much in a wider sense, at least again in the context of aspirations. Tesla brings it all down. Tesla's shares fell in pre-market trade on Thursday after the company reported earnings that missed expectations and warned of a slowdown in 2024. Tesla's automotive revenue rose only 1% year-on-year in the fourth quarter of 2023, according to CNBC. If investors were getting a little edgy with all of this, the following statement from Elon Musk surely did not help. He said that Chinese electric automakers would find significant success outside of China even as his firm Tesla faces intense competition from these same companies. The Chinese car companies are the most competitive car companies in the world. So I think that they will have significant success outside of China depending on what kind of tariffs or trade barriers are established. Frankly, I think if there are not trade barriers established, they will pretty much demolish most other companies in the world. So here we are going around in a circle. We spoke of capital flows which are being constrained, people flows outward that are being opened up or pretty much pushed out, free speech that People like Elon Musk obviously want to open up completely, but then again, trade barriers, which he would like to see so that his automotive production is protected in many ways. That's it from me for today. Have a great weekend and a Republic Day once again. See you on Monday. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. 
We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core dot in. And thank you once again for listening.